Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Joseph Stewart. Today, we are going to be discussing the Women's Mosque of America, Authority and Community in U.S. Islam from NYU Press, written by Tazin M. Ali. The Women's Mosque of America, or WMA, is a multiracial, women-only mosque in Los Angeles, California, the first of its kind in the United States. Since 2015, the WMA has provided a space for Muslim women to build inclusive communities committed to gender and social justice, challenging the dominant mosque culture that has historically marginalized them through inadequate prayer spaces, exclusion from leadership, and limited access to religious learning. Professor Ali explores this congregation, focusing on how members contest established patriarchal norms while simultaneously contending with domestic and global Islamophobia that renders their communities vulnerable to violence. Drawing on textual analysis of WMA sermons and ethnographic interviews with community members, utilizing Black feminist and womanist frameworks, Ali investigates how American Muslim women create and authorize new conceptions of Islamic authority. Whereas the established model of Islamic authority is rooted in formal religious training and Arabic language expertise, the WMA is predicated on women's embodied experiences, commitments to social and racial justice, English interpretations of the Quran, and community building across Islamic texts and in an interfaith context. Situating the United States at the center rather than at the margins of debates over Islamic authority, and showing how American Muslim women assert themselves as meaningful religious actors in the U.S. and beyond, Ali's work offers new insights on Islamic authority as it relates to the intersections of gender, religious space, and national belonging. Hazin Ali, welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Very excited. Of course, it's a pleasure to have you here. And thank you for writing The Women's Mosque of America, Authority and Community in U.S. Islam. How did you come to study gender, Islam, and the Women's Mosque of America in particular? So I'd actually come into graduate school very much interested in the study of Islam and gender and contemporary manifestations of these topics within the textual tradition. So I was interested in how scriptural and legal texts were used within contemporary debates and how they sort of applied to the lives of Muslim women, especially within vernacular Muslim communities, so specifically across South Asia and within the diasporic immigrant communities in the U.S. But I'd really come in wanting to focus on legal texts. And broadly, I was interested in the way that communities, specifically how they grapple with aspects that might have difficult implications for gender And then I remember seeing in the media that this new mosque in, you know, had emerged in Los Angeles that was all women, women leading prayer, giving the chutzpahs, giving the the sermons. And their first sermon from that inaugural Friday prayer, that Juma event, was actually posted to YouTube. And I remember listening to it. And at the time, I was taking a class on the Quran, and I wrote my seminar paper on this inaugural sermon and a couple of those other early chutzpahs. And so this was during the first year of the Women's Mosque in America, and they had been posting their sermons online in, in real time. And I was really fascinated by the way that they invoked the Quran and, and other Muslim scriptures. And so I immediately became really struck by the discursive project that I saw unfolding at the Women's Mosque in America, as far as the production and the community's emphasis on the Quran and their ways of reading it really captivated my interest. And it was just this very rich generative space 
to think about broader questions of scriptural interpretation and how contemporary communities are constructing authority and reading sacred texts. So that's how I get into it. What a fascinating entree into into the topic. And I was curious as I was reading, I think it would be important for readers to know what the age and racial demographics are at the WMA. So first, what are those demographics? And second, have they changed during the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question in terms of thinking about what is the community we're talking about. The community at the Women's Mosque of America is very diverse across age and race and ethnicity, particularly when I was doing fieldwork in 2017. So this was before the pandemic. There's a sizable percentage of elderly African-American women, but also South Asian, Arab, white Americans, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 60s. So there's there's definitely a range. And then, of course, like all religious communities, the pandemic really did have an impact on size and numbers, did drop down during COVID, as you might expect. When the services moved over to Zoom, they're back in person now. They, they might still have a hybrid component. But in some ways, the Women's Mosque of America always had this virtual component to the community. So as I mentioned, the khutbahs were being consistently posted to YouTube and to SoundCloud from the very beginning, from 2015. So they already have this online presence. And I believe the middle of 2018, they had started live streaming their jummahs on Facebook. So this was all pre-pandemic. So a decrease the number of congregants who, who may have come regularly in person. I and mean, I think we all know that there's only so much Zoom we can all tolerate. But it's what was really interesting to, to think about these organizations that already had a built-in online presence. So if you want to think about them as these alternative mosque communities, because they speak to people who don't necessarily feel like they belong elsewhere. And so they've actively sought out spaces of community in non-conventional ways. I think they're just more adaptable in how they seek that community. And this is not true of all of the members of the Women's Mosque in America in the sense that not all of them came from a place of being like unmasked or from a place of marginalization. But it applies to a fair few of the congregants in my experience doing interviews there. And so I think in some ways, communities like this had a bit of a more smooth transition during the pandemic, especially as, as far as my own sort of primary interest and focus in the book, which is on the ongoing production of women's clubbas. So watching and analyzing the space from, from afar, from the perspective of a scholar, I think one of the interesting things that came out of the pandemic, where I'm interested in you know, how women are giving sermons, how they're interpreting texts, it was really interesting to see how the pandemic actually created some opportunities for a more transnational presence. So during the pandemic, they had khatibas like Umaima Abu Bakr, this prominent feminist scholar, Egyptian scholar who's based in Cairo. And these are the kinds of things that probably wouldn't have happened or wouldn't have happened as quickly if it wasn't for this online pivot. And again, I'm just saying that from the the academic perspective as someone who's really interested in the is not a comment on the overall impact of community life or what it was like from the perspective of the leaders or those, the community members who go for that community space. But as far as sort of thinking about the demographics and the diversity of the racial and ethnic dynamics of even who is being offered the platform to give a sermon, it certainly paved the way for people who are in other geographical contexts like Egypt or just folks who were not local to Southern California to afford them this opportunity to be a part of this space and to, to, to cultivate authority and serve as, a, as an authority figure in that sense. Yeah, I think when religion scholars talk about the democratization of religion and the democratization of the internet, I think that questions of authority are almost always involved there. 
and thinking about the ways that if you have a platform, you have access to be able to assert or convey authority in different ways. And so I'm curious if you could tell us more about how ideas surrounding women-led prayer reveal motivations and perspectives of WMA participants over women's ritual authority. So restated, you examine community debates regarding ritual authority. How did ideas about prayer play into these ideas about authority? Yeah. So women-led prayer. In some ways, women-led prayer is kind of a background subject of the book, which might sound like I'm being a little facetious and, and talking about a book called The Women's Mosque of America and then saying, hey, this is not a book about women-led prayer, because it is, but it's a subject that I really tried to capture the nuance around as far as thinking about as you just laid out in your question, the difference of weight assigned to the subject of women-led prayer by different parties. So there's community de debates on the one hand, they're very heated, they're circulating in the broader American Muslim communities, also in Muslim communities abroad over the course of well beyond a previous decade before we're even talking about the women's mosque, where there's these debates over ritual authority. And then on the other hand, there's the actual concerns and perspectives of the community members, of those who are in the women's mosque of America space. And what I observed was kind of a lack of concern or investment in those debates within the community. So obviously, you know, this is a women's mosque, women are leading prayer, ritual authority is central to the project, as you just said. But many of the women that I interviewed were not particularly fixated over ritual authority. It just kind of happened to be a place where women were leaving prayer. And by nature of women participating there, they obviously thought that was valid vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic jurisprudential legality of praying behind a woman leading Jummah, leading Friday prayer. And there were also folks who had apprehensions about the legality of women-led Jummah. And that can be seen through you know, in that first year of the mosque's tenure, they introduced this option precisely for those women who were unsure about the legal uncertainty. They said, hey, you can sort of just pray on your own after the Jummah if they're worried that they're praying Jummah in behind a woman wasn't legally valid. So from an outsider perspective, from a research perspective, it just seemed like it wasn't something that was necessarily at the core of what sustained that community if there wasn't this sort of test where you had to believe that women-led prayer was valid in order to participate. And I think most of them did just by nature of, again, being there, praying there. But I think from the outside, there's, you know, these community debates over whether or not it's legitimate for women to lead prayer. And I would say that the Women's Mosque of America community is staking a claim in that debate. They're saying, yes, women can lead prayer. This is legitimate. This is Jummah. This is what we're doing. This is a proper mosque. We're calling ourselves a mosque. This is not just a, a community center or a women's center. So on the one hand, they're making these claims. And at the same time, there really isn't that sort of fixation, for lack of a better word, with that question or issue. It's not the be all end all that, oh, if you don't believe this, you can't be a part of this, this community. And I think that really speaks to the other kinds of the other types of authority as far as thinking about scriptural interpretation or interpretive authority that really open up in this space and that women are cultivating there and what the congregants themselves are, are drawn to. So when we think about authority, it's just so much more than prayer leadership. And I think that's why the Women's Mosque of America is, is such an interesting site to, to look at those trends. Yeah, thank you for that. In reading your book, it just made me think not only about Talal Assad, but also Marie Griffith and Robert Orsi and Alyssa Maldonado Estrada and others who are really working at, you know, the sort of day-to-day -day revolutionariness, which sort of seems like an, an oxymoron or a contradiction in terms. But in reality, that sort of lived religion aspect allows people to 
live their lives and find internal meaning, even as the scholar can find discursive meaning in, in broader terms, or other communities may be, may be more invested in the arguments that, that you're discussing in the book. I was also fascinated in the next chapter, where you take a look at how the WMA evaluates and reimagines what's necessary for women to serve as katibas. So could you please define what a katiba is for us, and how questions of language factor into contestations over interpretation and preaching from the Quran? I would define a khatiba as the, a female preacher who's giving a sermon at the women's mosque before leading the congregation in Jummah in Friday prayer. Beyond that, and this is kind of the whole point, there are no formal credentials, as it were. And that's the crux of what's distinct about the space as far as thinking about what makes someone a khatiba, what are the credentials they must have. And here they do not have to be formally trained as religious scholars. And some of them are. So there have been women who have been khatibas who do have those scholarly, Islamic scholarly credentials who are traditionally trained, but the majority of them do not. And that's really what makes the mosque such an interesting site to think about authority, because it's specifically taking the stance that lay Muslim women, so non-scholars, have something valuable to offer communities, that people have much to learn from everyday Muslim women when they're reflecting on their experiences and thinking about scriptures as it applies to their lives, going back to that idea of like, what is what does it mean to think about lived religion on the ground? How is the Quran manifesting in these women's lives? And I think that's where the language factor comes in. So the English language takes on a central role in ways that I guess you would expect that would be generally characteristic of American Muslim communities, right? So English is a vernacular American Muslim language. It makes sense that the khutbahs would all be in English. That's the language that everyone speaks in that mosque, given it's, you know, the, the ethnic and racial diversity. But something that I unpack more in the book is that English is doing more than just sort of being that default language of communication. And what I'm arguing is that English, that there's this elevation of English language to the status of Arabic in the sense that, you know, Arabic is the sacred language of revelation. It's the language in which Muslims conduct ritual prayer. And yet in this mosque, there's an emphasis on the Quran as a text that should be read, interpreted, and really applied to Muslims' daily lives. And so English takes on this added meaning as a bridge to being able to, to carry that out. And a lot of this is laid out from the get-go in the inaugural sermon from um, the Khatiba, first Khatiba, Adina Likovic. She comes in as a non-native Arabic speaker. She's describing herself as a non-native Arabic speaker. And she's in that first inaugural khutbah challenging the congregants. She's, she's asking them to recite in English, Surah Fatiha, the opening chapter of the Quran, that Muslims are, are reciting multiple times a day in, in their ritual prayers. So the, her khutbah elevated the idea, elevates the idea that understanding the meaning of a text of the Quran is actually the superior way to engage with the Quran over being able to recite it perfectly in Arabic and not understand it. And that's something that, again, is not necessarily new or unique in and of itself. Like Muslims have been approaching the Quran as a source of practical intellectual guidance for, for centuries. But at the same time, I see the women's mosque community pushing back against the standards in other U.S. Muslim communities where there is a reverence towards Arabic language training and traditional credentials, right? There's this implied authority of the Arab male religious scholar or the white male or female religious scholar who has somehow developed an affected way of speaking English and <laughs> tinged with an Arab accent, even if they're not Arab, 
because that's the whole picture of, of what Muslim authority looks like in the U.S. And so I think that's where this wholehearted embrace of English in spaces like the Women's Mosque becomes a way to think about what reconfiguring or reconfiguring what authority might look like that creates a more expansive, inclusive idea of what it means to be a Muslim authority. And it opens it up specifically for Black women or non-Arab women. And I think that lends perfectly into your next chapter, which speaks about embodiment. And what sort of women's experiences did you find in your ethnographic research were likely to be considered authoritative for the WMA's katibas? And if you don't mind me asking, how did you negotiate discussing such sensitive topics with your interlocutors? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, you know, as far as thinking about what does it mean to take seriously women's embodied experiences? And as far as what kinds of experiences, this is kind of the, uh, similar to the, the answer about what makes a katiba or katiba, of what kind of experiences can be considered authoritative. I don't think there was a specific criteria. I think one of the things from talking to, to people in the community and also looking at some of their founding documents, the women, Women's Mosque leans into this idea that this Faith. This mosque is a, is a chance, a unique chance to be able to hear from everyday women talking about their everyday experiences. So the expectation is really that the katiba will draw on some kind of personal experience to weave into the narrative of their khutbah and in the way that they're selecting verses from the Quran to, to relate to their experiences. And the idea there is that it's not just their unique sermons because they're because other mosques don't do this but they it's not just that they're hearing from everyday muslim voices where you don't get to do it other mosques from the perspective of the congregants would often say that but these sermons actually add something new so the argument is that there's actually something new happening there's a new perspective on the quran that's actually lacking in other spaces by tying women's embodiment women's experiences to the reading of the scripture where it makes it more personal and congregants would repeatedly mention, oh, this is why these sermons are much more engaging or powerful than the ones that I've you know, grown up hearing at my you know, family mosque or home mosque. And so interviewees would often say to me that hearing from everyday women allowed them to feel more connected to scripture because when they're talking about subjects like that are, as you mentioned, sensitive, like sexual violence or even marriage or motherhood, grief, they would often say, oh, it adds this different layer of credibility to them. To the second part of your question about navigating sensitive topics, I would actually say that a lot of these topics just came up organically. I think that I, you know, in talking to congregants, I would always really lead with open-ended questions asking, oh, you know, were there any particular cookbooks that really resonated with you or that were particularly powerful? And a lot of them just happened to mention the one on sexual violence. So there was this one, and I talk about this book on the book that was delivered by a survivor of sexual assault who's also an activist. And that was a recurring cookbook that my interviews mentioned over and over, even though it was from the mosque's very first year, people just kept mentioning it, even the ones who actually weren't there. They had to listen to it later online. And they were like, hey, this was a subject that we had never heard anyone talk about in other mosques uh, this openly. This is so great. This is so important. This was so moving. And then they would sometimes confide why it resonated with them or why it was so important to me. But my sense from the community is that they happen to really connect with clubs that dealt with those sensitive, difficult subjects, which kind of drives home 
your original question of, you know, what makes, what kinds of experiences are more likely to be considered authoritative. And it's really driving home that point that the ones that resonated most with them were those really difficult ones. And I think it just signals at the value of reading scripture through the lens of women's experiences in particular. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. And in fact, as someone asking questions about the book, it's really helped me to think productively about even the way that I frame questions. We're here on the New Books Network discussing the Women's Mosque of America, Authority and Community in U.S. Islam from NYU Press with Professor Tazin M. Ali. Professor Ali, American religious historians will be familiar with Muslim social justice activists in the mid-20th century United States or in present-day Iran, but may not be as familiar with how Muslim women continue that work in the United States in the current day. What sorts of issues does the WMA confront, and how does such a racially diverse group navigate specific forms of anti-Black racism in particular? I think it's unfortunately a common misconception, both inside and outside of American Muslim communities, that American Muslims are mostly Arab or South Asian immigrants. In reality, as, as you well know from your own work, the first U.S. Muslims were Black. Black Muslims used to be the face of Islam in the U.S. until the mid-20th century. And a sizable percentage of American Muslims uh, are Black. And so if we remind ourselves of this Muslim American history and its rootedness in Black communities and just think more deeply about what the actual demographics of Muslims in the U.S. are, it's much easier to think about Black issues as Muslim issues, if we have that understanding as our baseline understanding. So when we think about movements like the Movement for Black Lives, ongoing issue of police brutality, these are the kinds of social justice issues that Muslim women in America are concerned with, not least because you know, they're also Black women. But, you know, also we talked about earlier, it is a diverse community at the Women's Mosque of America. And so there's, you know, Latina Muslims, there's South Asian, there's Arab, there's white converts. So there's other issues that they're concerned with for immigration, mass incarceration, the environment. And I think some of the ways that the institution specifically navigates or combating anti-Black racism and I talk about this in the book. There have been moments they've had events or discussion circles around Black Lives Matter. And the ideas that they're really that I see coming from this is that they're really trying to think about the mosque as a space where people should become educated on issues of social justice issues, including anti-Black racism. And so beyond that, they've also organized series where they are essentially recovering Black Muslim voices in Islam. So they've done little features on prominent Black Muslim women, you know, anywhere from Hajar, the Prophet Ibrahim's concubine, or Betty Shavaz, the, the wife of Malcolm X, and people like that, where they're bringing to the fore, are bringing to the surface these narratives of prominent Black Muslim American figures to elevate them and secure their place in a history that's often overlooked or forgotten or maybe not thought of as easily as other images as a way to kind of bolster the status of Black women in the Islamic tradition. And so, again, on that discursive level of what they're doing as far as their sermons, that's, to me, a very interesting development to think about it, that educational piece of confronting anti-Black racism. But in the book, I talk more about some of the challenges of actually addressing anti-Black racism on that level of communities. But another, in terms of what's happening on the community level, they've organized one of the moments I talk about in the book is this 2016 sort of discussion circle series on Black Lives Matter, where everyone is sort of coming from a very different level of understanding, a different background. But I think that example in itself really challenges 
the highlights the challenges of anti-racism work. And I remember talking about this with you when I was drafting the book. It really models the challenges that come with allyship because people, again, are coming from all these different starting points. And then it very well illustrates that the frustration in all of that. And so I think this is a, a great place to even see some of those challenges. But thank you so much for that. I think that it also leads us into this great chapter that you wrote on interfaith work between the WMA and Jewish and Christian women in a post-2016 America. Do you see the WMA's interfaith work as a continuation or as a break from previous trends in American religious history, especially American Muslim religious history? I think it's definitely both. So on the one hand, interfaith engagement is is kind of a hallmark of American religious communities, especially ones that are in the minority, like Muslims. And so interfaith engagement, specifically for U.S. Muslims, has been an important aspect of outreach in, in post-9-11 America for Muslims to say, hey, look, we're not who you think we are. We're a part of civil society. We're not terrorists you know, the deconstructing stereotypes and all of that. And then post-2016 America, you have this newly charged xenophobia from the uh, Trump administration. And then there's this sort of shared motivation or renewed shared motivation to band together in response to increases in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in post-2016 America. So you see a lot or you see sort of these alliances between American Jews and American Muslims, which had existed before, but just maybe a renewed interest in them or other people noticing that this is important work. So in that regard, I think the WMA's interfaith work is very much continuous with those previous trends in other religious communities, other Muslim communities. It's also showing us a new trend because of the way that it actually makes interfaith community central to what the mosque community looks like. And so I don't think I mentioned this yet in our conversation, the Jummas at the women's mosque are actually open to any self-identifying woman. So across faiths, people without faith. And I think that's very unique. And I would say maybe a break from other kinds of community trends or interfaith trends, because we wouldn't necessarily see the same sort of active embrace religious outsiders into an intimate ritual practice like Friday prayer. And also not just the prayer, but then there are these intimate conversations that happen after the Jumba prayer at the Women's Mosque, where the congregants sit in a circle and ask the Katibo questions. And it often, you know, becomes this conversation that starts off about the flip but then about other subjects, often about scripture, about other kinds of community issues. And so it's a really intimate space. And I think that's where it feels like a break in my estimation, from other kinds of interfaith engagement. And there's something very powerful about that, you know, especially given that Muslim communities in the U.S. are still considered by significant portions of the populace as, as very suspicious, as sort of unwelcoming or insular, as people who stick to themselves. And it's interesting to think about this community of Muslim women who are making interfaith engagement central to their very idea of religious community. But at the same time, it's also reflective of how American Muslims especially are always making decisions against the backdrop of Islamophobia. And there's this need to always be open and, and welcoming to outsiders in the sense, you know, it's hard not to think about surveillance culture, as, as you well know in your own work on the Nation of Islam and just African-American uh, religious history, I think. But in that Muslim context, I think a lot about how a heavy online presence with the broader culture of Muslim surveillance, because now this mosque is actually inviting eyes into seeing what they're doing. And it raises that question or that dynamic of, you know, what does it really mean to 
do things in private versus what does it mean to always be operating under this potentially Islamophobic gaze? Where what does it mean from the Muslim perspective to always be thinking about how are you going to be perceived by others? And yes, yeah, so it's, it's so interesting, I think, from that perspective as a researcher, because it's the idea where on the one hand, it's branded as a safe women's space. It's just for women. It's this sanctuary away from men who have dominated other mainstream religious spaces. And even within that, what does it mean to still not have a space that's really just exclusively Muslim? And again, that's not to sort of undermine what folks find generative, and I'm sure many do, about that built-in interfaith element. But from that outsider perspective, it just, to me, goes back to that Islamophobia piece of it and thinking about communities that still have something to prove. There's still this feeling that Muslims have to vie for acceptance. And so there's an expectation that they have to gain the approval of religious outsiders, or at least prove that they're willing to sort of have this, invite this scrutiny, they're willing to be welcoming, maybe above and beyond what other religious communities would be willing to reciprocate. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think there's, not to overuse a term, but there's a real privilege of not having to be open about every single thing and being able to have private spaces for one's own religious affiliation. Dr. Ali, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And before we finish, I'd love to ask, what are two to three big picture takeaways that you would want scholars to take away from your work? Big picture takeaways. One, I would say that when it comes to global development in Islamic authority, it's constructed. We should take seriously the U.S. as a part of the so-called Muslim world, rather than thinking about it only as a minority context or on the margins. Because when we do that, we can see how American Muslim women are meaningful actors who are contributing to the Islamic tradition as it's unfolding, as it's being negotiated and lived out in communities. And so this is a way to understand that developments in American Islam have implications for communities and societies beyond their own. So that's one. And then I think the second one is sort of, you know, just as a small community like the Women's Mosque of America has global implications for the study of Islam in general, so to should we understand how it fits within these broader trends in American religious history to really cement the idea that Islam is an American religion. One final question. I know that you've just published this great book and that it's the culmination of a lot of years of effort and hard labor, but do you have an idea for what you're working on next? I'm still interested in a lot of these themes that come out of this book in terms of how the dynamics of gender and politics and Islam play out with this question of American national belonging. And so my next project pivots to examine these same topics, but within the context of entertainment media created by U.S. and U.K. Muslims particularly. So I'm looking at several case studies of fairly recent media produced by Muslims to examine how Muslims are negotiating that public gaze in entertainment media narratives as far as, especially as far as questions of dating and sexuality of marriage, to really think more deeply about how debates over Muslim national belonging are always gendered. The book is The Women's Mosque of America, Authority and Community in U.S. Islam from NYU Press by Dr. Tazin M. Ali. Tazin, thank you so much for discussing your book with us today. Thank you so much.